Previously on Stupendosaurus Rex. to kind of preface uh, this discussion with Jaws 2 was the very first horror film that I ever saw. And I saw it like I was about three years old, give or take, with my mom. It showed up on uh, on television and we sat and watched it together. And this kind of began my lifelong love with horror films. But uh, it wasn't long after I saw Jaws 2 that I wound up watching Jaws. And it's kind of one of my favorite horror films in the sense that it it kind of set off this lifelong love for, for horror. Um, and it was a really good example to start with, I feel like. Even though my taste in horror has, um, has delved into the really deep recesses of crappy horror films, starting with a really good base like, a, like Jaws has kind of helped. Um, refine that love for horror films. So that's kind of where I'm coming from with this movie to start off with. I just remember basically those first musical notes. Like, okay, how 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 young were you when you first? Do you remember? I honestly don't remember for sure. Um, I do believe it was on TV. When I saw it, thankfully, I had access to cable when I was that young, so I got right. to see the unedited version. Jaws is uh, like the second um, directing credit for uh, Steven Spielberg, which everybody knows from everything else that he's directed. His first uh, credit was a movie called Duel, which was made for television, which was a, a salesman versus a mysterious man in a truck that you never actually see. Like It's... Sort of a cat and mouse game between um, th- this salesman and this guy in a, in a big semi, and it was uh, it was a competent enough film, I guess. I don't know if I ever saw it. Although the the sort of invisible trucker sounds kind of familiar. I'm not sure yeah, if I ever saw that movie though. But I think other movies have kind of copied. Yeah, it's that. a trope that has shown up from yeah. time to time. But um, sort of the unseen monster basically exactly uh jaws had a lot of issues with the mechanical shark that they used (laughs) so many issues a theme that shows up really often if you watch like special features and behind the scenes stuff or um commentaries uh, in regard to jaws is just how much of a pain in the ass that mechanical shark was spielberg named it bruce after his lawyer because (laughs) obviously you're going to name your shark after your lawyer but that thing just it, it just kept breaking down all throughout filming and it was just a huge hassle and you can the movie a lot of the movie was saved in editing later on but you can kind of get a feel towards the end of the film that Spielberg is done with this shit and wants to get it done and move on to the next thing a lot of that just came from his frustration from having to deal with this broken ass mechanical shark despite all of that he crafted an amazingly intense thriller about a couple of guys fighting a shark. And I think from that movie also began his partnership with John Williams. Yes. Because after that, I mean, pretty much every movie he's directed has had John Williams compose. 
to begin this movie, we have a couple running down the beach, uh, getting ready to go skinny dipping in the ocean. Um, these are teenagers. They've been drinking all night at a bonfire with their friends. Because it's a love story. Exactly, because it is a love story, and that love comes up over and over and over again throughout this whole film. <laughs> and I was kind of curious, who is it that runs a quarter mile down a beach and just sort of tosses their clothes behind them as they go? I have never done this thing. Skinny dipping? Not skinny dipping. Okay. I have never just tossed my clothes. No. Yeah, I, I like to know where my clothes are when I'm done. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You're going to want to put those things back on. Yeah. But this couple, well, specifically the girl, she seems to already know she's going to get eaten by a shark because she has no concern whatsoever for where her clothes wind up as she's stripping herself running down this beach. That's true. And they run for probably a good quarter mile. Yeah, I mean, the dude is obviously out of shape. He is. Well, he's in shape. He's just drunk as shit. But by the time they reach the beach and she's in there swimming. He's ready to pass out. He's like laying on the beach like. Just he's done. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, and he I, does wind up actually passing out on the beach. What whatever she thought she was going to get from him, obviously wasn't happening. Yeah, even if she didn't get eaten by a shark. And so uh, this particular actress, she plays uh, Chrissy, who is the first victim of the shark. Uh, we don't actually see the shark in the scene. Um, we see uh, Chrissy being dragged back and forth by the shark. Yep. And at the time, at least, it was a pretty terrifying scene. Nowadays, it feels kind of slow. It the, feels... the whole movie's kind of slow compared to nowadays. Right, but I don't mean the scene itself. I yeah. mean the attack. Her yeah. being dragged back and forth doesn't feel... At the time, it was horrifying, though. It, yes. It's, it's an unseen assailant. Yes. Attacking. And then that that backing music coming from John Williams. I mean, that's like all of that together put together like the perfect attack scene. It's a great introduction to the movie. Especially for, you know, a young kid at the time. Yeah. Poor Chrissy. She is attacked and she is uh, devoured by the shark. And uh, then we cut away to uh, the introduction of Sheriff Brody and uh, his wife. Ellen, I believe her name is Ellen. And they are played by uh, Roy Scheider and Lorraine Gary. Interesting note, or maybe interesting depending on how you view these things. Uh, apparently Lorraine Gary was um, like the wife of a producer or something, and that's how she wound up getting the job. Uh, I think they had other people in mind for that particular role, but the producer insisted that his wife play it. She does wind up actually doing a really good job in the movie, though, so it's kind of hard to to fault the producer for that, but it does feel a little kind of shitty. Yeah. Just in general. I don't know. I mean, if you're a producer, you ought to be able to have some say in the movie. Yes. But, but there is a thing about yeah. the nepotism of just being like, oh yeah, well you're going to make my wife. I'll, I'll give you money. Cast my wife. Yeah. You're going to, yeah. you're going to cast my wife in this part. She there, did do a really good job. She so. did do a fantastic, yes. much better than she did in Jaws 4. Uh, which we are never going to talk about again. <laughs> Roy Scheider, of course, did fantastic in this movie. He is maybe one of my favorite uh, actors from my childhood. I have real warm feelings for Roy Scheider. He's one of those guys that I... He feels grandfatherly to me. At the time, I felt more fatherly. Like, yeah, but, but, yeah, at the yeah, time. Yeah. yeah, but he also seriously wore the same exact pair of glasses my dad did, too, so... Mm. Yeah, yeah. Aviator style. <laughs> and we're kind of introduced to him and his family pretty early on. We are actually introduced to um, the most um, ignored dog in all of cinema history, which is uh, the, the Brody household dog. Poor Shows dog. Up in maybe two scenes. Nobody ever addresses the poor damn thing. Fun trivia note, it was actually um, Steven Spielberg's dog at the time. And uh, apparently he just wanted to get it on screen damn dog doesn't do anything, doesn't play any part in the movie, but it's there if you're interested. In Another example dog. of Hollywood nepotism. Exactly. <laughs> 100% a true love story. <laughs> We're introduced to Brody's uh, children, his oldest son first, who comes in uh, to the house with a cut on his hand. Brody says uh, that he cut up because he'd been playing on that swing again. He gets a call that 
he has to come into town because um, a body has been found on the beach, and he's the sheriff. And he's the sheriff. I I, I guess we didn't we nope. didn't discuss this at all. Um, Brody is in fact the sheriff of this small island community called Amity. Um, he winds up uh, going out to the beach and comes across uh, the body of Chrissy, or what's left of it. Um, Poor Chrissy. And then uh, we have to go to um, his office where we kind of meet his secretary. Um, and there's this exchange that has always bothered me. Um, it's maybe one of the worst telephone exchanges in all of cinema history. And it's one of those things that it has set a precedent for films after this point that I feel is maybe St- Steven Spielberg's worst contribution to cinema ever. After Brody has found the body, uh, he's in his office and the secretary comes in and uh, the phone rings and she picks up the phone and she says, uh, Chief Brody's office, medical inspector, and hands the phone to him. Not really any pause between Chief Brody's office and medical inspector. It's just almost immediately, there's no time for whoever's on the other end of that line. Say who they were. To say, there's no, hey, Mabel, or whatever your name is, how you doing? It's Jim, the medical inspector. Can I speak to Chief Brody? Is he there? Nothing that you would expect to happen and on the phone. to be noted, at this time, there was no such thing as caller ID. Exactly. So. This is 1975. People need to announce their shit. Yes. Apparently, this woman picks up the phone and says, Chief Brody's office, and the person on the other end of the line immediately says, medical inspector. And she goes, medical inspector, and hands it to Chief Brody. In snap. Yeah. Yep. Boom. But then Brody, this is probably, this is the worst thing ever. Brody puts the phone to his ear and says, yeah, type, 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 long pause as he looks at what he typed, which is the words shark attack on the police report, and then hangs the phone up. No more dialogue. And and no more charting of, of whatever went into that report. Exactly. It's seriously... This is how I imagine the conversation went down. He goes, yeah. And then the person, the medical inspector, on the other end of the line says, S-H-A-R. Because it seriously looks like Chief Brody is typing what... Yeah, and he types super slow, too. Yeah, he's typing what the person on the other end of the line is saying without reading it. Yep. And then reads it and goes, oh my God, a shark attack? I'm not even going to bother to say goodbye. I'm just going to hang the damn phone up. <laughs> that 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 seems legit. I I I full on I full on support that theory. So, Spielberg, if there's anything about this film that you should be ashamed of, because I know you're listening, it's this one scene. It's really just a terribly done scene. Just that scene, though. A lot of the rest of this film is great, but that scene in particular is just a, is a blight on the face of cinema history. And you should be really ashamed of that. And then just throw your millions of dollars on your bed and go roll around in it. At this point, Brody decides that he's going to go down to uh, the general store and uh, buy some stuff to make signs to keep people off of the beach. While he's doing that, well, before he leaves, he tells uh, his secretary that he needs her uh, to give him a list of all of the water activities that are happening. Because... Uh, if there's a shark out there, he doesn't want you know, people hurt, obviously. Then he goes down to the general store to buy um, uh, some stuff to make a sign. And while he's doing that, his deputy arrives and tells him that there's uh, some little kids, uh, some a Boy Scout troop that are trying to get their swimming badge. He assigns his deputy to take care of the sign issue, and he runs out to wherever the Boy Scout troop is at uh, to go and get them out of the water. And while he's in the middle of this, he gets waylaid by the mayor and a group of the mayor's friends. The mayor, number one, has probably one of the tackiest suits you've ever seen in your entire life. The mayor's outfits are fantastic in this film. And he just looks like one of the biggest douchebags you've ever met. The actor's name is Murray Hamilton. Uh, the character he plays is Mayor, Mayor Larry Vaughn. Uh, and he's fantastic in the role. Oh, he's great. He's great. 
the uh, he's he's playing a douchebag mayor. He is pulls off that role miraculously. He set the gold standard for this particular trope of the city official or government official or whatever who refuses to look at the horror that is occurring has some other um, motive that requires him to ignore that particular horror. In this case, uh, Amity is a summer town. They earn all of their dollars during the summer season. People show up there to swim on their beaches, and if the tourists don't show up, the town makes no money for the year. And the mayor, his job is to ensure that that doesn't happen, that the beaches stay open. Murray Hamilton nailed that. Yep. So he shows up in his tacky-ass jacket and begins this process. He tells Chief Brody, look, if you scream Barracuda, people go, huh? You scream shark, and you have a panic on the 4th of July. He's basically saying, look, you can't, you can't close the beaches. Don't put your damn signs up. Yep. And he also tells them you don't really have the authority to do it anyway. In the process of this conversation, it is also brought up that the uh, medical examiner says, uh, oh, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe it was a boat accident, a propeller accident. Because he's a really skilled medical examiner. It's not just that. It's because Amity is a summer town. He's got to go with the mayor because they got to keep those beaches well, open. Well, and the mayor's paying his, well, allowing his salary to be paid to him. So, yeah. I think it almost immediately after that goes to the scene with Brody on the beach. Uh, uh, this is just before the first uh, shark attack that everybody witnesses. And um, at this point, we run across uh, like Bad Hat Harry, which uh, if any of you are fans of like the director Brian Singer, you know that his production company is called Bad Hat Harry, which he took from you know this film. It's just a, a city councilman who wears a rubber swimming cap, and it's just awful. And he comes up and criticizes Brody because Brody doesn't like to go in the water. I don't think it's ever expressly stated in this particular movie that Brody is afraid of the water, but it is part of his... Uh, character. He, he mentions it a couple times himself, but we, we don't know why. Well, I think it's brought up by his wife once, and uh, she brings it up as a phobia, and she kind of does this, what is that called? And, and, and Brody goes, it's called drowning. Yeah. Yeah. And then he brings it up kind of near the end, too. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I know in, it's explored a little more in Jaws 2, and at some point in time, we may actually do Jaws 2 on this show. Uh, because it's a good one. It's not a bad. It's not a. It's a. In a way, it's kind of a redundant sequel. But as far as sequels go, it's not a bad sequel. Uh, three and four, we will probably never do because those are kind of crap films. Unless you plan on bringing them up. He just shook his head no. <laughs> um, no, no, no. But so we're on the we're on the beach with Brody and his wife and um, and a, a crowd of townsfolk. And we get to meet kind of some, we kind of kind of get to meet some of the townsfolk, and there's a weird thing in this movie. I don't know if you noticed this uh, or not, Jason, but when you listen to the banter of the townsfolk, and one person in particular, an actress by the name of uh, Fritzy Jane Courtney, the older lady with the short dark hair and the really huge glasses, every time she opens her mouth in this movie. She tends to be like in the forefront of all of these kind of uh, crowd scenes. I think she runs a, um, like a hotel or something on the, on the island. Everything that comes out of her mouth, it's the weirdest line reads of the weirdest dialogue. Like, I don't know how, how else to explain it. Her in particular, out of everybody, it's just her line reads. Like, uh, they almost feel nonsensical. I have no real clue if she's a bad actress or not. Her her credits are not particular. She doesn't have a particularly large um, list of credits. For some reason, she tends to pull me out of the movie almost every time. I just can't get over. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it's it's the acting or if it's her lines, but I think it's both. Yeah, she feels kind of like an uptight sort of a character, and uh, like and, and that's fine to have the uptight type right. character but but she she feels like a community theater sort of an actress forced 
forced into a major motion picture. Yes. That's kind of what it feels. Yeah. And most of those scenes feel that way too. When you have like the crowd scenes and there's a bunch of people talking at the same time, it feels like they recruited a bunch of locals from the island yep. to be actors and none of them are. So I don't know. This is kind of a, a long kind of diatribe about something that's super unimportant to the story, but it's just one of those things that kind of stands out. And it also feels like a seventies thing too. It feels yeah. sort of reminiscent of movies of that time. Yeah, I mean, uh, almost every uh, uh, exploitative uh, sort of film that you see has that same situation going on, really. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I can see that as being, that's just the way movies got made at the time. Yeah. Give everyone so. like five bucks or something and here's some free food. Yeah. Regardless, um, now that I've pointed it out, you if you didn't notice it before, you will probably notice it now. And it will haunt your dreams. Uh, I only mention this because uh, this is kind of the first time that Miss Courtney's character, who, or by the way, um, I don't think she's ever actually introduced in the movie, but her character's name is Mrs. Taft. Uh, this is the first time that Mrs. Taft uh, shows up in the movie, as far as I can recall. And her and her husband are kind of hanging out with the Brodies. Uh, on the beach. Um, we're introduced at this point to uh, Alex Kintner, who is a young boy, uh, probably seven or eight years old. So he grows and grabs his raft and he runs out into the water. We're treated to kind of a little mini montage of people uh, playing enjoying, in the water. Enjoying the water yeah. sports of yeah. the day. Well, I don't know if water sports is the term you want to use. but Water funds. Yes. One of the people is a, a dude who's throwing uh, a stick for his dog. And Spielberg uses a real interesting um, editing technique where um, they have something moving in front of the camera to cut to the next shot. Uh, it's supposed to imply that there's a person that walks in front of the camera. And then uh, we cut to the next scene. And these are all kind of focused on Brody. And it sort of closes in on Brody as uh, inevitably he witnesses... Uh, the death of this boy, Alex Kentner, and uh, a few other beach goers witnessed this. It is heavily implied, although not shown, that the dog is also, in fact, eaten by the shark, yep. uh, where uh, the guy who's throwing the stick is calling for his dog, and the dog is not showing back up, and they show a shot of the stick just kind of floating off into the water. So in this one scene, Steven Spielberg kills both the dog and a eight-year-old child. Young Alice Kintner is out in the water. Uh, the shark attacks. Uh, we see uh, a scene from the shark's POV of it uh, swimming up underneath uh, the boy, and we get uh, more of John Williams' amazing score. And then a humongous gout of blood, and then the boy is pulled under. And, and is seen no more. Everybody freaks out. <clears throat> So we have a scene where uh, the mayor and the city council and Brody are talking to the townsfolk about the shark, and we learn that Mrs. Kentner has set up a $3,000 reward for the capture and killing of the shark. And at this point, we get to meet uh, Robert Shaw in probably his most memorable role as Quint, the uh, captain of the Orca. And his most memorable introduction. In which he uh, uses his fingernails on chalkboard. Uh, over uh, a, a chalk drawing of a big shark eating a little guy, um, which is really cute, but it also is kind of weird. In that yeah, it's very cartoony, the, the shark drawing. It's not just cartoony. It's the, uh, the implication that Quint came in and drew this picture. We, we think he drew it? Uh, I think he drew it. I wasn't sure who drew it, but I just remember then fingernails. Yeah. Shark drawing. Like, well, the thing is, there's a scene just before this where one of the city councilmen asks the mayor if the $3,000 was payable in cash or check, and he's kind of making a joke. It's not a great joke, but he's kind of making a joke. And um, once again, Mrs. Taft, who's in the front row of this group, goes, I didn't find that funny. I didn't think that was funny at all. So there's this kind of implication that if somebody had drawn this shark eating this little person on the chalkboard, people would have seen that beforehand. And right. Mrs. Taft would have been like, "That's I don't like that. So I kind of get the feeling that Quint was the one who drew this, which is ridiculous. 
I mean, it's just a ridiculous drawing and the sort of idea that Quint came in and drew this picture and then did the, ch the nails on the chalkboard and drew everybody's attention to him and this particular picture before he starts his spiel about, I will hunt a shark for you. But it's going to cost. It's going to cost. $10,000 instead of it. He goes, I'll find it for 3000 but I'll kill it. I'll catch it and kill it for ten. So they go, well, okay, we'll, we'll take this into consideration. And uh, Quint sort of exits the film for a little while at this point. Yep. Not too long after this, maybe almost immediately after this, we see tons of fishermen have descended on Amity because of the three to $3,000 reward. And uh, we're at a dock scene where uh, all of these uh, guys are getting ready to go out and hunt the shark. There's guys that are overloading their boat with too many people. There's guys that plan on using dynamite that, um, and it's kind of a big clusterfuck sort of a scene. And Brody is kind of running around like a chicken with his head cut off and his deputies aren't really, or his deputies, his one, deputy one deputy is not particularly helpful. And the summer deputies haven't shown up yet. Uh, so there's not really anybody to help out Brody. And uh, at that point we were introduced to uh, Matt Hooper played by Richard Dreyfus. And he is uh, the shark expert. He's a shark expert. Yeah. Uh, so this scene is basically to kind of introduce Matt Hooper. And he, at this point, wants to go and see the first victim of the shark. Right. So he goes uh, with Brody to see the remains of, um, of Chrissy. And uh, he's there with Chief Brody and the medical examiner. And he makes it known in almost immediately that this was not a boating accident. This was absolutely a shark attack. And he kind of uh, admonishes the um, the medical examiner for even trying to pass this off as a boating accident. Yeah. Uh, so then we have a scene where the, uh, the fishermen are all heading out in the sea to go catch the shark. And they're acting like assholes and idiots. But they eventually catch a shark. And they think that it's the shark. And they're dead wrong um but they're they're we don't know that yet they 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 want that to be true though i mean they they right. want to pass that off as regardless of what yeah. the shark expert says they want this to be the shark in quotation marks and then they can open the beach yeah because it's almost tourist season so let's get this going yeah yeah so they're all posing around the shark and having a jolly good time. And the mayor is super happy. And even Chief Brody is really happy. Chief Brody thinks that they have succeeded. And meanwhile, Matt Hooper, who has just examined the remains of poor Chrissy, uh, goes through and measures the bite radius of the shark and realizes that this is not the shark that killed Chrissy and probably not the shark that killed Alice Kintner. And he tells this to Chief Brody uh, as the mayor kind of overhears the conversation and uh, and Matt Hooper says, look, there's a real simple way to find out. The digestive tract of this, uh, of this animal is very slow, and so I want to cut it open and find out what it has eaten recently. We should know then whether or not it is the shark that has killed Alice Kintner. Um, and the mayor is absolutely opposed to that. I'm not going to cut the shark open right here and have that, that Be poor boy spill out on the... Because why look for evidence? It's not just that. He has a, the mayor does definitely have a point. I don't want the boy spilling out on the dock. So while this is going on, Mrs. Kentner shows up. Dressed in black, veil over her face, the full-on funeral attire. And she confronts Chief Brody because she has found out that Chrissy died earlier on and that Chief Brody knew that there was a shark and still let people swim. And it's a gripping scene. Yep. It's probably my second favorite scene in the whole film. It's a, a great scene between her and Brody. And she smacks the crap out of him. There's apparently 17 takes, which she continued to smack the crap out of him in every and, single and one. And it looks like she really did it. Oh, too. she did. She yeah. definitely smacked. There was yeah. at least one take where she knocked his glasses clean off of his yep. face. And there's kind of a bit of a humbling of Brody at this point where... Mrs. Kentner accuses him of kind of being complicit in the death of her son and leaves. And the mayor says to Brody, she's wrong. It's, it's not your fault. She's wrong. And, and Brody says, no, it, it is 100% my fault. 
And so you kind of get a sense of, a real good sense of Brody's character at that point, which kind of plays in a little bit later on when he actually decides that he's going to go out, even though he's supposedly afraid of water, he's going to go out on the boat to hunt the shark with Quint. There's another good scene right after this, actually, with Brody and his son at the dining room table, where they are, where his son is mirroring him. It's a real small, quiet, kind of uh, unassuming scene that's just kind of there to kind of give a sense of the family as a whole. Family dynamic, yeah. Yeah. And so you get to see Brody interacting with his son, and that he's a good father and cares for his kids as well. It's also kind of a tug-at-your-heartstring sort of a, yeah. a scene as well. Right in that same scene, we get a real good sense of who Matt Hooper is, because Matt Hooper sort of just barges into the house at that point, totally uninvited. He actually says, your door was open. He just kind of walks into the house. Um, he brought a couple of bottles of wine with him, which is very nice. Yes. It's always nice when somebody brings you wine. But then he ganks somebody's dinner right off the table. Ganks somebody's dinner, and then he and then he instructs Brody on how to pour the wine, because... Uh-huh. No, no, let that breathe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. You kind of start to get the, an idea. You, you don't of, get to call the shots here, buddy. This is my house. <laughs> yes. It's good. It's a good It's a good show of who Brody is, but it's also a good show that Hooper is kind of a bit of a spoiled kind of, yeah. like he doesn't have good boundaries. Yeah, really. yeah. But he uh, convinces Brody that, yeah, we need to go down to the docks and we need to open up that shark and find out if the little Kenner boy is in there or not. And so that's kind of the next scene. And, of course, it's the wrong shark. Yep. So they decide, um, well, Hooper in, in specific decides they need to go out and uh, patrol this little area where the shark attacks seem to be happening at, and they may come across it. And what they wind up coming across is um, Ben Gardner's boat. It's a character that we don't really get to meet. And his boat is just kind of out there in the water. And so uh, Hooper puts on a wetsuit and uh, dives in and winds up getting one of the biggest jump scares uh, in the whole film. Yep. That scene caught me over and over and over again for quite a few. Yeah, I think almost every time you watch it, you're just like... Well, it's yeah. just, it, I, I keep forgetting that there is a jump scare in that scene. Yep, yep. that's exactly how they get you. <laughs> the big question, though, is what exactly happened to that guy? He's just hanging out in his boat. Like, there's... there. Okay, I, I should set the scene. When Hooper goes down into the water, there is a hole that has been bashed into the bottom of the boat, and there is a shark tooth that is lodged in the wood. So, obviously, the shark has apparently hit the boat from the bottom and punched a hole through it and lost one of its teeth. Chewed on some wood. Yeah. So, Hooper is examining this tooth, and he looks back up into the hole, and uh Ben Gardner's body drifts into view and you see, you know, his head pop in and that's the jump scare. But if Ben Gardner's just hanging out in the bottom of his boat, what exactly happened to him? He's his head is still attached to his body, so it's not like his head just popped into view. For his missing an eye, though, for some reason, for all intents and purposes, he just hung out in the bottom of his boat while it was sinking and drowned. The shark didn't actually get it. <laughs> it's a so it's a total nonsense death. Maybe maybe compression from the depths. But it, the like the boat was not that eye out. The boat was not that far sunk. No, they saw it yeah. from up above, from the top of it was still above water. And he had all of his limbs too. Uh, presumably, as far as we know, uh, yeah, I think you only see the yeah you only part see of his chest yeah. and his and yeah. head. So you don't really, I mean. I guess he could add some pieces chewed off of him, but yeah, it's never brought up either. Yeah, how the eye pop out? They mentioned that they encounter his boat, but I don't think it's ever brought up that he's actually dead. Yeah. As far as uh, the trivia of it goes, uh, at some point in time, um, Spielberg, whether it was the producers or Spielberg himself, decided that they needed another jump scare in the film, and so they shot that in a pool in Hollywood. I think it was in Hollywood. And inserted that into the movie. And Spielberg learned that uh, you kind of only have enough, uh, like the audience kind of only has enough um, for one big jump scare. Because the other big jump scare is when you see the shark. Right. Um, about an hour and a half into the movie. And he got a bit, initially that was the big reaction of the film. But then once he uh, inserted this jump scare with Ben Gardner's head, um, that actually been, became the scene that everybody really jumped at, and they didn't jump at the shark as much. 
there's a, I think a brief scene where um, Chief Brody and uh, Matt Hooper are talking to the mayor about they have to close the beaches and there's the big billboard that's been defaced with graffiti of uh, a shark swimming up on this, this lady with big cartoony eyes and the bubble above her head that says, oh no, a shark. And um, throughout that whole scene, the mayor is really miffed about the graffiti on, this is kind of uh, critical to this character's uh, motivation. He's really concerned about the graffiti on this billboard doesn't seem to give a shit one way or other about the discussion of the shark attacks that are actually happening to the point where he even is actively hostile to Matt Hooper claiming that he just wants to to get into the national geographic. Well, I mean, the the town, the mayor, the town, they're the ones that drafted this guy to come in. And then now all of a sudden he's just trying to get into the national geographic. Who gives a shit? You guys brought him in. Whether he wants to use it for the National Geographic or not is beside the fucking point. But it's irrelevant to anybody but maybe this mayor. Right. Who just wants, he needs an excuse to hate to, this guy. Not just to hate this guy, but to push all of this aside. Right. Because 4th of July is just the next day, I think, at this point. Yep. And those beaches have to stay open, which they do. Got to get that tourist money. Yep. You got the tourist arrival montage. Tons of tours to show up. And at this point, you actually get the Peter Benchley cameo. Uh, he is, uh, if you're not aware, he is the uh, news reporter who's hanging out on the beach talking about the shark attacks recently happening and whether or not the people uh, hanging out on the beach are worried about it. It's just kind of a, brief, a real brief cameo. Um, Peter Benchley died, in, I think, maybe in like 2006 or so, uh, coincidentally, of a shark attack. I'm kidding. It was like cancer or something. I'm going to hurt you. <laughs> uh, it was pulmonary fibrosis in 2006. Ah. Yeah. And uh, the mayor shows up on the beach uh, to harangue um, some of the councilmen, uh, telling them, look, nobody's going into the water. So get your ass out into the water. And one person goes out into the water and everybody else follows at this point. Because lemmings. Essentially, yes. So at this point, we get the fake shark scare. The two kids and the cardboard shark fin. Right. And everybody freaks out and barrels out of the water. And this is kind of, this is the one scene in the movie. I think if it played out like in a realistic way, this movie would have an additional two dead children. (laughs) Because there were a bunch of people with guns in case oh. the shark shows up. Right. And so I kind of feel like you see the shark fin come in. The first initial reaction is these people are going to start shooting the shark. I forgot about the guns, actually. Yeah. yeah. I, I just remember after that, I remember a lot of people just... Panicking and trampling each other. I, I meant real life. Like I, I remember myself even going to the pool and bringing my own shark fin with me because, you know, it just seemed like a fun thing to do literally you actually did that have a shark fin wow water yeah no i mean that 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 stuff was selling in the store they're like here's a shark fin yes please thank you i will buy that wow (laughs) i've never owned a shark fin in in the pool though never even once thought to hunt down a shark fin and go and prank people (laughs) with it this happens about an hour into the film you have the fake shark scene with the two little boys and the, and the cardboard shark fin. And then they pop up out of the water to find themselves surrounded by guys in boats with guns pointed directly at them. And the one little boy goes, he made me do it. And they wind up pulling the, the, the kids out of the water. There's already been a huge panic. People are trampling each other to get out of the water. And, you know, one of the guys, in the, uh, I think is the deputy, calls up to Brody that it was a, it was a fake shark and it wasn't anything there's a an estuary off of this beach uh where the little kids and the old people go and hang out the lady off by this estuary sees the actual shark go into the estuary um and she starts screaming shark and brody's like oh what now another fake yeah but she keeps screaming about it and 
Uh, this is the, the scene where we first actually see the shark. He's still underwater, so we still don't get a great look at him. But it's the first time that we actually see him. Uh, there's Brody's kids and some of his friends playing in one of their boats in the estuary. And there's some weird dude who's got horrible dialogue in a boat off to the side. The kids are trying to tie some sort of a knot, and he's trying to school them on how to tie the knot. And it's the weirdest setup for a scene because there's no reason for him to be interacting with these kids. It's almost like creepy stranger dangerish sort of a vibe. You mentioned before they were working on their swimming merit badge. So now they're working on their not tying merit badge. I'm I'm just thinking maybe this creepy dude is their scout master because there's some creepy scout masters out there. Just saying. Okay. I can't commit to that and at all, but um, regardless, this guy doesn't seem to need to be interacting with these kids at all. But he Unless still he's their scoutmaster. Yeah. And the thing is, Jaws understands this. So he bumps the boat and knocks the guy out of the boat and then drags and then, him underwater. And then eats him. Yeah. And the scene where he, where he grabs the guy, is a, it's a great looking shot. It's a top-down shot looking at the guy hanging onto the side of his, his overturned boat. And you see the shark come in sideways with its mouth open and grab the guy's leg and pull him under. And that's kind of the the impetus to actually hire Quint and get the actual shark hunt underway. And this happens an hour into a movie that is almost exactly two hours long. Yep. So this is the midway point of the movie. We go to a scene with um, Brody and uh, Matt Hooper in uh, Quint's shark cabin i don't know exactly what that place is essentially there this scene is just them hammering down the fine details of chartering quint getting his services yeah to to go out and hunt the shark and the idea that brody and hooper are both going to be going along with him quint gives uh, hooper a lot of flack about being a city boy and not having uh, workers hands he has smooth baby hands yeah it's, a, it's just a fantastic scene where you get to kind of get a feel of who Quint is and how much he's not putting up with people's shit, and he's just kind of his, his own guy. He's a manly man. I think a lot of that has to do with Robert Shaw being hired as hired in the role of Quint. Uh, Robert Shaw, before this, I think the thing that he was most known for, and this is way before my time, so I can't say with 100% certainty that this is true, but the thing that I know him most from before Jaws was he played the villain in... Uh, from Russia with Love, uh, yep. in which he played essentially a big, silent, manly man that uh, was a like a Russian assassin. So these are the kind of roles I think that Robert Shaw wound, wound up excelling in, and uh, he really put on a character with with Quint. It was uh, the maybe accent, the accent, everything. Yeah. There's also a bit of sadness to this because around this time, Robert Shaw's alcoholism was really uh, doing a number on him. And it was making it difficult to work with him as well. And Robert Shaw actually really hated Richard Dreyfus, So that animosity that you feel between the two of them throughout the movie is pretty much real. It came through. It came through, <laughs> and it makes a wonderful dynamic within the, the context of the film. That it was a pain in the ass to film, though. Yeah. Robert Shaw was the second most difficult thing to work with on uh, the set of Shaw's yeah, short of the shark itself, yes. But he did turn in a fantastic performance in the end. And uh, part of that is exemplified by the fishing scene, uh, which happens not too long after they uh, they hire Quint. Quint and Brody and Hooper are all on the boat. Hooper's job is to pilot the boat. Brody's job is to chum the water. And uh, Quint's job is just to be Quint. And uh, this first scene is him with a humongous fishing rod. He's got the whole setup, a uh, uh, leather leather harness. Leather harness, the seat, the there's, there's foot that, brace. Yep, foot braces. He's got that uh, rod placement, whatever. I don't even know what it's called. I, it's, I, a, it's a setting that you put the end of the rod yep. into to keep it steady. It's a... It's a genuine it's meant to catch some heavy fish yeah it's a genuine deep sea fisherman's setup this whole scene is essentially if you just look at if you just step outside of what's going on in the scene and how you feel during the scene it's essentially a dude fishing but it is one of the most 
tense scenes in the entire film. It's really a testament to how great of a director Steven Spielberg was, even that early on in his career. And and great uh, Robert Shaw as well. You know, the manliest man on the block, <laughs> getting ready to catch the biggest goddamn fish you ever saw, and, yep. and getting set for all that shit, and then... And then you have the actual fishing scene where you never see, you don't see what it is that he catches on his line. There's just a struggle between him and this fish. Whatever it is. Yeah. And he's sure it's the shark and Hooper is sure that it's not the shark. Yep. You're expecting something to happen right there. Yeah. And and then nothing really happens. Then the line snaps and they don't catch whatever it is that they're going after. Which is like every fishing experience I've ever had ever. (laughs) Right. And then Quint tells Hooper, don't tell me how to do my job, city boy. <laughs> it's a great, it's, it ends in a great little tete-a-tete between Hooper and Quint. And every time those two get to go head-to-head with each other in this film, it's, it's fantastic. Okay, so an hour and 21 minutes into the movie is the first time that the shark itself pops up into frame and you get to see it, which is um, where... Chief Brody is grumbling about having to chum the water, yep. even though that's his job. And uh, the shark pops up and almost nabs him. And uh, he backs off into the cabin where Quint is at and says the most famous line in the film. We're going to need a bigger boat. Yep. This kind of begins the sequence with the barrels, which is uh, where they're going to harpoon the shark to keep it from, uh, diving, too from, deep. from diving too deep. Yep. It won't be able to pull. They think it won't be able to pull the barrels down. And there's another super tense scene here, which is all about Richard Dreyfus tying a knot. Quint has made it to uh, at the bow of the orca, and he's um, he's ready to shoot the harpoon at the shark to get the first barrel in. And he's telling Hooper he needs to tie the barrel onto the the, the line that's going to be fired from the um, that's going to be fired with the the harpoon. Hooper has a little tracking thing, a little tracking beacon that he wants to get from down below decks and tie that onto, onto the, the barrel onto the barrel as well. So he breaks from what he's doing and heads downstairs and grabs that stuff. And, and Quint realizes that uh, Hooper is not tying the barrel on it. It's a, like a race against time sort of a sequence, but the whole, the whole sequence is really, this guy has to tie a knot. Is he going to get the knot tied in time before the Maybe. barrel is shot out? But it's still, it's just another fantastic uh, example of how good Spielberg was at uh, setting up tension. I also want to point out real quick, we've mentioned Boy Scouts a couple times. Boy Scouts itself is something that pops up in multiple Steven Spielberg films because he actually was a scout himself. I was not aware of that. He, he actually was an Eagle Scout. That's one thing we learned in, in Scouts was... You know, who are some of the most famous Eagle Scouts? And you list off presidents and other people. And Steven Spielberg is one of those that uh, we were all very proud of to, to have uh, as as a former scout or current scout, I guess. But I, I think that's one of the reasons for him anyway, why that kind of ends up being a recurring uh, theme in some of his movies as well. So uh, we're finally at... The absolute best scene in the entire movie. Um, is it the kissing scene? It is the kissing scene. Nice. Between Brody and the shark. <laughs> Lots of tongue. Um, night has fallen and everybody is below decks and uh, they begin comparing scars. They're all kind of drunk or getting to that point. And, um, I think Quint... Uh, really was drunk Robert Shaw I, th- I think oh, he, he was he was definitely really drunk the initial um filming of this particular scene he was actually drunk I think they all got drunk for this scene for uh no I, I think they were acting oh you think so yeah because mm-hmm. that's what actors do I know that um once Shaw initially starts on with his monologue about the USS Indianapolis yeah the first time they had uh filmed that he was drunk and it was an abysmal take he thought that he could do it drunk, and he was it was an abysmal take. And so he came back the next day and apologized to Spielberg and asked if he could do it one more time and did it sober. And it wound up being one of the most brilliant 
like story within a story kind of moments in any film ever. That just that whole sequence below deck is it's just fantastic from beginning to end. Even before the discussion of the Indianapolis, where they're just comparing scars uh, to them singing uh, sea chanty songs together. So I, I don't want to like rail too much on that scene. Everybody knows that scene. But uh, we get to uh, uh, a scene that I'm not a huge fan of where the shark attacks the boat uh, or is trying to break into the... uh... I love that scene. Well, the problem with it is it just kind of feels like somebody on the other side of that boat with a sledgehammer hammering into it. It does not feel like a a shark is hitting that boat. It felt like a shark to me. When you've got a two-ton shark pounding on the outside of your boat, I, I don't know. I just, I thought that was the scariest scene out of all of them. Plus, I was sad because he ruined their buzz. He also ruined their engine. They had a lot of salt water in their engine, and yeah. they had the whole trying to repair the engine sequence afterwards, which was, you know, obviously, it was the point of that scene was to screw up the engine and so that later on the Orca can break down and strand them. Quint actually seems to go a little bit nuts. Um, that kind of, just for the briefest of moment, that kind of calm cool sort of exterior it seems to crack where um they've put three barrels on the shark and uh it's dragged them out to sea a ways and um their the boat is billowing black smoke they're finally decided that they're going to head back into shore and let the shark chase them back into shore and uh quint is pushing the boat harder than it should go and uh hooper goes up there to try and tell him and he starts hitting hooper and telling him to get the fuck away from him and all this other stuff and i found that kind of interesting because it's just a brief it's just that one scene that where it kind of feels like quint might not be as in control as uh he He seems to think that he is the rest of the movie yeah 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 and so the ship and it uh inevitably it breaks down and uh the only option they have at this point is to try and use um some of the tools that Hooper brought on the boat with him, the shark cage and uh, the spear with the poison in it. Yep. The the note that I have for this particular scene is uh, obvious stuntman is obvious uh, because the guy who goes down in the shark cage is not Richard Dreyfuss. Uh, it, is a, it is a stuntman by the name of Dick Warlock, and he very clearly is not Richard Dreyfuss. A little, little less pudgy. Yeah. It's in the eyes. You can definitely see in yeah, the eyes. the eyes. Thighs. Those two, apparently. I <laughs> did not spend a lot of time looking at a man's thighs, but to each their own. No, no judgments. So obviously the shark swims in and just destroys the cage. And uh and this is where the movie and the book differ. In the book, Hooper doesn't make it. Shark chomps his ass up. I was kind of thinking, I mean, on one hand, I don't know, I, I thought that's nice he made it whatever but seriously the whole time the shark is attacking that cage i was like that dude should be dead by now Mm -hmm. that shark is beating the crap out of that cage like one hit and it's just wide open ready for ready for the chomping to happen and and he somehow survives well the story behind this is um hooper and brody's wife actually wind up having an affair and uh, that whole sequence was cut out of the movie because it doesn't actually move the plot forward at all. And it doesn't in the book either. The whole reason that it was put in the book is to sex the book up a little bit. And I don't remember entirely if there was ever a confrontation between Brody and Hooper about that. But the punishment for that was Hooper gets eaten Hooper by gets the shark. Right. Um, during the filming, the initial plan was that Hooper was going to get eaten in the shark cage. And they had had uh, some actual professionals in Australia who film sharks for a living. They had set up a, a sequence where they had a, kind of a smaller sized cage because no shark is actually as big as Jaws. No right. existing shark nowadays is as big as Jaws is. So they had a, a kind of a scaled down cage that they put in the water and they were having sharks attack the cage. And the idea was they were going to have a, like a dummy in the cage and the shark was going to attack the cage and break through and eat the dummy and tear it up. And it's a fucking wild animal. It doesn't follow orders. That didn't happen. They couldn't get the footage for it. Uh, the one scene they actually had where the shark destroyed the cage, uh, there wasn't a dummy in it. So they didn't have the footage. 
And we didn't have CGI back then, so. Right. So uh, Spielberg just said, you know, fuck it. Uh, Hooper lives. It doesn't matter. So Hooper escapes the cage and swims down to the bottom. Trying to get dart. Well, he just goes down there and hides. That's really all that happens. Yeah. He does. At that point, he's out of the movie. He was, until he was looking. The, he was looking for that dart, though, but he just could not. Or the the poison, but he couldn't. He couldn't. Yeah, the very first drop. thing that he does when the shark hits the cage is drop the spear that he needs to kill the shark. Yep. But so yeah, he goes down to the 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 seafloor and hides, uh, and he doesn't pop back up until after the shark is dead. Uh, meanwhile, up on the boat, they reel the cage up and see that the cage has been destroyed, and then the shark comes halfway up out of the water and crashes down on the back of the boat and half sinks the boat. And I kind of love that whole scene, but at that point too is when you kind of do realize how kind of fake the shark looks. Yeah, it's a little it's it's pretty fake. It looks pretty fake. Yeah. But I still love the whole scene. I mean, the, the yeah. shark is up there and he's like trying to chomp these guys. You're at the point in the movie where you're almost two hours into the movie at this point, and yeah. they they're just like, "We need to end this thing. We're done." Yeah. In the book, Quint dies the same way that uh, Captain Ahab dies in Moby Dick, right. where he gets tied up uh, on the side of well, the shark and dragged under. In the movie, because it's um, you know a visual medium, it's far more exciting to see Quint get chomped in half by the shark, which is what happens. He slides down the boat into the shark's mouth and. Uh, Brody tries to save him and, and can't, and the, the shark bites into him and drags him under. And I believe that the shark dies in the in the book because the he it can't drag the barrels down underwater, and eventually it uh, it dies of exhaustion. Like it's a real anticlimactic. Keeps trying to swim against the barrels. And yeah, it, I believe that's how it dies in the book. Uh, some uh, somebody who's read the book more recently than I have can correct us on that, but. Death of the shark in the book is far more anticlimactic, but it actually caused a rift between uh, Peter Benchley and Steven Spielberg because Spielberg decide instead that they're going to do the whole thing with the oxygen tank. Uh, they're going to shoot the oxygen tank in the shark's mouth and blow its head up, which won't actually happen in real life. But um, watching a shark's head explode is pretty fun. It's cinematically very fulfilling. Yes. And that was the thing that Spielberg understood that Benchley didn't. And later on, when Benchley saw the movie and realized how great of an ending it was, he you know, relented and, and you know, uh, praised uh, Spielberg for his decision. I definitely prefer Spielberg's ending, ending to Benchley's, uh, but there is the whole like reality, reality and physics thing yeah. behind it that you just kind of go, that doesn't, that doesn't pan out. Quinn's dead. The boat is mostly sunk. Pretty much total. Yeah. yeah. Um, Brody has found the rifle that um, uh, that Quint has on the boat with him, and uh, he uses that to shoot an oxygen tank that has been lodged in the shark's mouth uh, in an earlier scene that we didn't talk about because there really isn't anything going on in that scene but the oxygen tank being shoved in the shark's mouth. Um, and it blows up the shark's head, and uh, that's the end of the shark. Um, and then Hooper pops up. They build a little raft out of barrels and a piece of wood, and they uh, they paddle, paddle their way to shore. Paddle home. And that's how the movie ends. But I did go and hunt down a, a one-star review for Jaws just to give an idea about how some people might feel about this film uh, who didn't like it as much. Uh, this one is called I Have Waited This Long So That I Could See the Film Again uh, by somebody named uh, Grumpy3. And this was uh, written back in 2010. Uh, and it's kind of a short one. It says, uh, I've waited this long so that I could see the film again and see if it was as bad as I remembered it. Uh, it was far worse. One of the most boring films ever made, uh, as with most Spielberg films, the heroes or protagonists are all pretty stupid. Uh, there were a million ways to kill the shark, but they chose the most cumbersome and dangerous. I remember when I first saw it, being utterly bored most of the time when nothing happens and we get scene after scene of crap dialogue and stories from not very interesting characters. Then the shark appears and it is so bad it's like pantomime, which in England is kids' musical comedy with over-the-top and not well-made props. It is so obviously not in the least bit real and even less scary. Why people keep rating this film that has no scares or tension uh, in it is beyond me. It's like the Beatles myth. As the greatest band in the world, it keeps getting perpetuated. 
same as Spielberg being the greatest director of all time, when in my view, he's not even in the top 100. That dude has no soul. He has really bad taste in films, would be my guess. And music. I mean, seriously. (laughs) He has no soul. The thing is, uh, this guy uh, in particular, I don't really mean to call him out, but he seems to have a really short attention span. Uh, Blade Runner is three hours of utter tedium and brain-crushing boredom. If it if it goes on for too long and there's not it's not action on top of action on top of action, I don't think this guy he, he just gets into short it. Short attention span. Yeah. Okay. But there are people like that out there. I don't mean to shit on people like that. And those people will probably not like Jaws very much because well, it they, is a slow burn. Those people probably won't like this podcast very much either. But there there are people out there that just they just have short attention spans and a movie like Jaws, which is two hours long and is a slow burn. Uh, it's not going to appeal to them. And I, I, I guess I can understand that. And uh, unless you got any more to add to it, uh, I think we're going to leave it there. Yep. Okay. Uh, we'll be back in a sec with our outro. So that's our that's our very first episode of our very first podcast ever, and I think we totally killed it. It was awesome, and you enjoyed it. And yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, if you really enjoyed it, though, uh, you can follow us on social media. Uh, you can find us at Stupendosaurus Rex on Facebook. You can find us at Stupendous underscore Rex on Twitter. Um, and you can also send us an email at uh, stupendosaurusrex at gmail.com. And I guess this is the point where we got to let you know uh, what movies we're going to be doing two weeks from now. So, uh, Jason. I picked another love story that everyone should definitely watch, The Fifth Element. Um, I decided to take the low road. I went for... Uh, I look. I had to sucker punch you guys real early just to give you an idea of some of the real horror shows that I'm going to be uh, hitting you guys with. So I went with the movie that, at the tender age of five years old, gave me the worst nightmares that I have ever had in my entire life. It is a little-known slasher film from 1982 called Trick or Treats, which I believe currently can be found on Amazon Prime. Uh, it stars no one, but it has a, a, a <laughs> Kill Bill is a guest star in the in in the film. Uh, John David Carradine. David Carradine. Yeah, one of the Carradines. I don't remember which one. Look, I, I'm not. It's not a scary film, folks. I want you to understand that. I don't want you to go into this thinking that you're going to be watching a terrifying film. This is a film that terrified five year old me. This movie is abysmal but i really want to inflict it on the rest of the world so right now it can be found on amazon prime uh i think it's also available for free on youtube um in kind of really bad um resolution you're welcome you're very welcome and i'm also very sorry um and just before we go look it takes a lot to maintain the stupendosaurus rex and so we don't have a lot of downtime. So we scheduled a, uh, about two weeks between podcasts, and there's a lot of stuff that you can do within two weeks. And so we, we have some suggestions for you. Uh, there is a book out there I read recently. It's called Wool by an author named Hugh Howey. That's W-O-O-L? Yep. And it is, uh, I don't know if you're a fan of sort of post-apocalyptic genre. It's a pretty fantastic read. Uh, The author, I find him to be quite um, 
cinematic in his approach to writing. It feels like you're reading a movie. It's a it's a pretty good book if anybody likes that sort of thing. Uh, and my suggestion is that uh, wherever you are, uh, you go and you grab yourself some friends, uh, five or six friends, uh, and you go and buy yourself some Dungeons and Dragon books. Doesn't matter uh, what edition, whichever one is closest and easiest for you to get. And you sit down and you play Dungeons and Dragons with your friends. Doesn't even matter if you guys know how to play. Figure it out on the way. It's it's going to be fun for all of you. And um, there's a, a stigma from the 1980s that Dungeons and Dragons is all about summoning devils, or being witches and worshipping the devil or whatever. That's 100% true. Hi guys, I just wanted to remind everyone, the films we'll be discussing in our next episode are Trick or Treats, uh, released in 1982, starring Jacqueline Garreau and Peter Jason. You can find it on Amazon or YouTube. Uh, And The Fifth Element, which was released in 1997 and stars Bruce Willis and Mila Jovovich. You can rent or buy The Fifth Element on Amazon, iTunes, or Vudu. And we're currently working on getting an RSS feed. So hopefully you'll be able to find us soon on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast catcher. In the meantime, if you'd like to help us out, click the like button, subscribe, leave us a comment. All of those things help us get noticed. And also, Jason and I would like to hear from you. Tell us how we're doing at Stupendous underscore Rex on Twitter, at Stupendosaurus Rex on Facebook, or drop us a line at StupendosaurusRex at gmail.com. And once again, I'd like to send a shout out to One-Eyed Doll, who provided us with all of our music, including our theme song, I Am a Viking. You can find links to all of their music at oneeyeddoll.com. Definitely check them out. And that's it for now, kids. Until we speak again. <laughs>